Jesus Christ. Obviously, he's someone important, otherwise we still wouldn't be speaking about him some 2,000 years after his death. But who is he, and do people care? Well, actually, there's a good number of people outside the church who know his name and have an opinion on him. And why is this? Because Jesus still lingers in the consciousness and the mind of popular culture, a little bit like Gandhi and Mother Teresa. Those sort of people. Now I have some street interviews that I'm going to show you on the screen. Random people approached by a film crew and they're asked, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Mm. Uh, uh, um, uh, I think... uh, Uh, I believe he was a person. Um, He's the son of God. I don't believe Jesus ever really existed. Son of God. If I have to answer that question, I would say God. Uh, he plays on the wing for Chelsea. If you read the Bible, I don't think I believe in all of that. Everything. <laughs> you can be any, but for me, he's everything. Who is Jesus? To be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not super religious or anything, so... I mean, he, I guess he's a savior or something. <laughs> Personally, I think that Jesus was probably a really cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people, and it snowballed from there. Wasn't that interesting? Really interesting. That's taken from the Alpha series, their second Who is Jesus uh, video. And what do you think of that last quote from the young lady? I think she hit it on the head when it comes to popular culture. Personally, I think Jesus was probably this really cool dude who lived a long time ago, gave out wonderful advice, but it all snowballed from there. And you know, it's answers like this that show us why the Gospel of Mark is so incredibly relevant today. For Christians claim that where we spend eternity depends on the answer to this question, who is Jesus? And this is the key question that Mark keeps circling back to time and time again all through his gospel. Through his gospel, he asks us, who is Jesus? And then he says, let me show you. And he shows you in his miracles and in his teaching and in his compassion and in his hard words. But all the time, Mark is forcing us to answer, who is Jesus? So for the next few months, we're going to focus on the first eight chapters of Mark and we're going to keep asking ourselves, who is Jesus? And we're going to start with the first three verses, in particular verse one. So let's dive into Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we'll peel back this verse word by word, phrase by phrase, starting with the beginning. Now in the original language, in the original Greek, this sentence starts with just the word beginning, arche. There is no the. Now there are two other books in the Bible that start with the word beginning, in arche. So which two books? Genesis, in the beginning, God created And the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So isn't it interesting that Mark and John, two Gospels, both start with a direct reference back to Genesis, beginning. 
the beginning. It's very clear in John, and it's also very strongly hinted here with the word beginning. So Mark wants to signal from the very first word that Jesus is a new beginning, a fresh start on the level of Genesis, on the level of God creating the heavens and the earth, something new and exciting and life-changing, earth-shattering is at hand, and it's Jesus. Beginning. And next we have the word gospel, the beginning of the gospel. Now gospel literally means good news or glad tidings. Now we use the word gospel different than in Jesus' day. We use the word gospel in two ways. We talk about the gospel as the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Or I might say to you that I shared the gospel with a friend at work yesterday. And you will know that means that I was involved in a bit of evangelism. I shared Jesus with the hope that he would make a decision. So that's where we use the word gospel, a book and evangelism. But it was not used by that at all in Jesus' day. It was a word that was used outside the church and it meant heralding or announcing good news. A good example of this was with the empire-wide announcement of the birth of the future emperor Augustus. So all these edicts were written and, and, and it was communicated through the empire, the gospel of Augustus's birth. And that was the phrase that was used, the gospel of Augustus's birth. And it was proclaimed throughout the whole empire. And that's how Mark sees the word gospel. It's announcing this incredibly wonderful news throughout the region, throughout the empire, throughout the world, that a true and a better king, that a true and a better emperor had come. And what do we know about this king? Well, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus. We know his name, Jesus. Now, Jesus is a Greek version of a Jewish name, Joshua. So if you were a parent and you had a little Jewish boy, you might call him Joshua. And if you were a Greek family and you had a little boy, you might call him Jesus. And it was a very common name in those days. Joshua and Jesus both mean the same. They mean God saves. Joshua means literally God saves. And that's what the name Jesus means. Now this was not a family name. It's not like Mary and Joseph had a lot of Joshua's or Jesus is in the family. It wasn't even a name they thought, oh, this is good. You know how you get a book of names. You go through the book of names. You think, which one do we like? And then you do all that. No, it was nothing like that. You, You may remember from your Christmas nativity sort of background how Jesus got his name. Joseph had found out that his fiancée was pregnant and he was agonising up what to do. He had assumed that she had been unfaithful and In a dream, an angel appeared to Joseph to put him straight. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said, She, that's Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So you see the double reinforcement here. Jesus means God saves, and the angel says, Jesus will save his people from their sins. So to the question, who is Jesus? He came to start new beginnings. He is the true and the better king 
and he is the one who saves. You cannot understand who Jesus is unless you understand he is the one who saves. And there's more because we read here the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Now, most people think that Christ is a surname like Douglas Bradley or Mervyn Mitchell, who's now paying attention since I mentioned his name. But it's not. Jesus Christ is not like Bradley or Mitchell. It's a title. It would be like saying Douglas the minister and Mervyn the farmer and Jesus the Christ. So we all know what a minister does. Um, This is totally irrelevant to what I'm saying, but the best definition of a minister I've heard is six days invisible, one day incomprehensible. (laughs) Today's my day to be incomprehensible. Forget I said that. (laughs) I still think that's funny. Probably done my reputation as a minister no good whatsoever. But we know what a minister does, don't we? Douglas the minister. Mervyn the farmer, we know what farmers do. Jesus the Christ, what does Christ do? What's, what's the title mean? Well, again, if we go back into the original language, Christ is the Greek version of the word Messiah. In the same way that Joshua and Jesus were Jewish and Greek versions of the same thing, Christ and Messiah, Messiah the Jewish, Christ the Greek. So Jesus' Jewish name would be Joshua Messiah, but we refer to him as Jesus Christ. And Messiah means anointed one. And this is really key because as soon as we hear the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, this ties Jesus back into all the Old Testament prophecies that speak of God's anointed one. God's anointed one who would come to save God's people and set up this wonderful kingdom. So even though Jesus has come to set up something brand new and fresh, Everything that Jesus does and did is rooted in the Old Testament. Okay, So it's fresh and it's new, but he's not saying, right, let's just throw out everything in the Old Testament. He's saying, you can only understand me when you look back into the Old Testament. Jesus the Christ, the anointed. And this brings us to our last phrase. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now this title, the Son of God, it's almost impossible to underestimate how important this is for Mark as he writes his gospel. As the story unfolds, there are four other places apart from here where Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. And was it from his family, the people who knew him best? Well, no, no, any members of his family say Jesus is the Son of God. Was it his disciples who were with him for three years? Did they declare him to be the son of God? Well, no, nowhere in Mark's gospel. Not even Peter. The four times he's declared to be the son of God come from one of the most surprising and unexpected voices. And the first ones that declare that Jesus is the son of God are the demon-possessed. Mark chapter 3, verse 11 Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before Jesus and cried out, You are the Son of God. Who would have guessed? Who would have guessed that God's enemy would get it right? You see, even the demons knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Even Satan 
knew that his time was ending and they trembled. For the second example, we go to the end of the gospel, to the darkest moment in history, that first Good Friday when darkness fell across the earth and a cry rang out from the cross and Jesus breathed his last. And then Mark tells us in chapter 15, 39, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And again, we have something incredibly surprising. First, it was the demonics, and now it's the hated occupying soldier, the enemy of every good Jew, despised Gentile. None of these people, the demonics or the occupying soldier, you would want on Jesus' resume. These are people that were despised, marginalised and pushed to the side. And it's the same today. Those people that are rejected in our society, those people that are pushed aside, those people that are on the edge, are often the first to recognise that Jesus is the Son of God seems that God has a strategy to going to those on the margins and the rejected first with the good news. And I talked about this a week or so ago, one of the biggest resistance to the gospel is for those that have their life together and don't see the need. And consciously and unconsciously they're relying on their own skills and ability and the money in the bank and their stable family life. And often they're the hardest to win to Jesus. But those on the edge... Those that are hurting, they are often the first to see that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's two, the demonics and the centurion. Who else said that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, none other than who? Does anyone know? No, no, he declared him as the Christ, but not the Son of God. No, it was God himself. Our Heavenly Father, at his baptism and transfiguration. At his baptism, Mark 1 verse 11, this is God declaring from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Who would have guessed that? God himself, his voice thundering from heaven. And at the transfiguration, this is my son whom I love. Notice the definition. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. You see, that Jesus is the Son of God is vital in Mark's Gospel. It's vital for us to understand. Why? Because Mark knows that we love to come to Jesus on our own terms. We love to see Jesus as our friend, as our comforter, our get-out-of-jail-free card. And in many respects, he is those things, but he is much, much more. We love to pick and choose to mould and shape until Jesus, well, he kind of becomes in our own image, someone we can pull out of our back pocket when we're feeling a bit sad or when we're in trouble. But Mark won't let us encounter that Jesus because he is the Son of God. And can I say to you, just think about this personally, if your relationship with Jesus is one of comfort only and he never speaks a word of challenge into your life, but I wonder whether you have a real relationship with Jesus. You know, when's the last time you've been reading the Bible and you've felt, oh, I think I need to get that sorted, (laughs) you know? Or maybe a good friend 
or family member who loves the Lord have just put a little finger on something and you thought, yeah, I need to sort that out. I mean, that's the Jesus of Mark. Yes, he will comfort us and be with us in our time of trouble. But the Jesus of Mark will also confound and frustrate us at times. And we need that Jesus, the Son of God. Now, what does the Son of God mean? I mean, what is the Son of God? Isn't it true that elsewhere in the Bible people are referred to as sons of God? Well, yes, it is. We are created in God's image and we can relate to God in a special way. So in some respects, we are sons and daughters of God. And isn't it true that elsewhere in the Bible, angels are referred to as sons of God? Yes, it is. Those heavenly beings who shine with the glory of heaven, when they appear, people fall on their knees out of fear because of that glory that they have. Yes, they are referred to as sons of God in the Bible. So isn't Jesus just a very special human? Or maybe even he's an angelic being? Or is he something else? Is he unique? What does it mean to be the son of God? And we've got to get it right. Because if he was just a human or an angelic being, the question is, is he qualified to save us? And is he worthy to be worshipped? If he's just a special person, should we be worshipping him? If he was just an angel, would that be enough to save us? And the answer to this question is found in the next couple of verses in Mark. From verse 2, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now there's a lot happening in these verses. Mark is pulling not only on Isaiah but a couple of other prophecies there and pulling them together into that one passage. And here we're introduced to John the Baptist. He's the messenger that Isaiah is referring to. John is specially preparing the way for someone unique, ultra special. So who is this ultra special person? Well, when we look at the original passage in Isaiah, we're in for a big surprise. So if we turn to Isaiah 40 verse 3, okay, so, so that bottom verse on the screen is the screen that Mark is quoting from, Isaiah 43. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Now notice what Mark does to this quote. Look at the last word of each verse and what has he done? Goodness me. He has substituted the word God, Yahweh, that personal revelation that God had at the burning bush. Remember that? Remember Moses was at the burning bush and God told Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses said, well, who shall I say sent me? And God from the flame says, I am, Yahweh has sent you. So this was the personal name of God, a name of God even today that the Jewish folk consider so holy that they will not even pronounce it on their lips. And this is what Mark has done in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He has changed the messenger for preparing a voice in the wilderness for Yahweh. That was the Isaiah reading. He's changed it to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him, Jesus. Straight away, Jesus redefines all the Old Testament to focus it on him. 
It's a key theological, if you can use that word, key theological point. All of the Old Testament comes into focus in Jesus. But the crucial thing here is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author Mark is telling us that Jesus is God, Yahweh. It's like son of God, lowercase s, are you and I? Sons of God, lowercase s, angels. Son of God, capital S, underlined in bold, is Jesus. Unique and just nothing like it. And it had to be. It had to be this way because if Jesus wasn't the Son of God, he could not save us. If he was just an angel or a human and then he died on the cross, then that could not save you and I. Sin and death have such a grip on us that they could not pay the debt that we owe. It was only because Jesus was fully God and fully human that his death on the cross has brought our salvation. Jesus, capital S, Son of God, means that we are saved. But not only that, it also means that we can worship Jesus. If Jesus was not the Son of God, capital S, we have no business bowing our knee and singing his praise. The Old Testament makes it clear that we must worship God and God alone. What are the first two commandments about? Have no other God. Exodus 20, verse 1 to 2. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no idols. You shall not bow down and worship them. And what do we Christians do? We gladly bow our knee and worship Jesus. If he was just a special human or an angel, we would be breaking the first two commandments. This was made clearer to me this week when I was listening to a podcast by a university chaplain called William Willimon. And he recounts when he left his position as the university chaplain to take up a ministry position in a church, he was on very good terms with the the Jewish chaplain. They'd worked together, helping, um, being pastorally caring students and staff at this university, and their farewell was warm and from the heart. But the rabbi's final words to Willimon, with a twinkle in his eye, were something like this. It's been great working with you, but I still consider you an idolater. And he's right. Because the Jewish look at Christians worshipping Jesus and they say, you are worshipping an idol. You are not worshipping the one true God. And it is a stumbling block to the Jewish folk. It was a stumbling block in Jesus' day and it's a stumbling block today. And for the Muslims as well, who have the first five books shared with us and they worship only Allah. So when they see Christians worshipping Jesus, they also think that we are infidels and we are worshipping idols. We reply to this though, well you say we are idol worshippers, but we say Jesus is the Son of God. We say Jesus is Yahweh. We gladly worship him as Messiah, the Anointed One, he who saves us from our sins. We worship no other we worship our Heavenly Father, and we worship Christ. So you, can you see how important it is that we understand who Jesus is? Not just in our head, but in our heart as well. So let's pull all this together. Well, if we think back to those original interviews, and in particular that young lady, let's think back to her. Personally, I think Jesus was probably a really cool dude who gave out lots of advice. He lived a long time ago, 
but then it snowballed from there. Now, what would our reply be to her? Well, we could say that Jesus' coming herald a new beginning on a similar level to creation. We could tell her that the gospel is this wonderful announcement of a true and a better king, that this true and better king came to save her from her sins, that he is God's anointed and the son of God. But that might be just a little bit much to talk to someone on the street. (laughs) It's all true, and it's vital that we as Christians understand this and live this out. But maybe a better place to start with a lady like that is with our testimony, with a story of how Jesus became real to us. So I want to finish with a story, uh, Sam's story, as an answer to those people who say, who is Jesus? Well, Sam grew up in a non-churched home knowing very little about Jesus. Towards the end of his high school, Christian friends invited him to a youth group. There, for the first time, he heard Jesus explained. Sam goes on to say this, I quickly realised that Jesus was far more compelling and far less easy than I imagined. I'd grown up with a pretty anemic view of Jesus, kind of halfway between Gandhi and one of the Bee Gees. I thought Jesus said ethical things. He had long hair and nice teeth and all that sort of stuff. But I began to realise that the Jesus of the gospel says things that are incredibly arrogant to modern ears. Yet he is incredibly compassionate. I also began to realise the things he said about me I couldn't avoid. I quickly began to realise he was the kind of person He said he was, but I was the kind of person he said I was. So, shortly into this process, after a month or so, I started to think, I need to follow this man. If he died for me and was raised from the grave, then this is someone who I can trust my life with. Who is Jesus? He is someone I can trust my life with. He died for me, He was raised from the dead. I gladly bow my knee and worship the Son of God. Let's pray.